Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. In this series, we are discussing the fall of the Ottoman Empire and the creation of the modern Middle East. This is now the eighth episode in this series. And so before we get into the, the main story, I think it would, it would be beneficial to discuss where we are so far, not just do a recap of the last episode, but try to catch everyone up who might just be joining in for the first time today. So here is where we are. The Ottoman Empire, at the beginning of our story, the Ottoman Empire is behind most European nations. In fact, it is called the sick man of Europe by many people. And most of the other European nations, particularly the powerful ones such as Britain, France, Germany, and Russia to a certain extent, most of these European nations expect to eventually partition the empire at some time and take over most of its territory. In 1908, the Committee for Unity and Progress, which was a Turkish political party, but we know them mostly as the Young Turks, in 1908, the uh, Committee for Unity and Progress came to power, and they wanted to modernize the empire, which was a good thing. However, not so good, the Young Turks also promoted a Turkish nationalist ideology that alienated other ethnic groups within the empire. So the Turks, they wanted to modernize, but they know they needed a European ally to protect them, to protect the Ottoman Empire while they embarked on this modernization effort. They knew that the other European powers had ambitions for Ottoman territory, particularly the Russians and even some of the uh, Balkan states that were former Ottoman possessions. The young Turks knew a lot of these European powers had ambitions, and so the Turks turned to Germany and eventually signed an agreement with Germany to become allies. However, in 1914, war broke out in Europe when Prince Franz Ferdinand was assassinated in Serbia. Germany got involved in the war. We won't go into the details of how all the different powers got involved, but Germany eventually got involved and they wanted the Ottomans to enter the war. However, the Ottoman Sultan, also known as the Caliph of the Muslim world, though he controlled only a small portion of the Muslim world in truth. Anyway, the Ottoman Caliph and the Ottoman Grand Vizier, which is similar to a prime minister, they did not want to enter the war. However, Enver Pasha, the Ottoman Secretary of War or Minister of War, he, who was also one of the primary leaders of the Young Turks, he did want to enter the war. Like most people at that time, he expected it to be a quick war. and He, he was hoping that the Germans would win and to be on the winning side of the Germans and hopefully expand Ottoman power, land, and influence. So, Despite objections from the Ottoman caliph and prime minister, or grand vizier as he most, proper, most properly is known, Enver Pasha initiated an attack on the Russians in the region, and that forced the Ottoman Empire into the Great War, which we of course know as World War I now. Meanwhile, over in London, Lord Herbert Horatio Kitchener is appointed as Britain's Secretary of War. 
Lord Kitchener had made a reputation for himself in the Middle East, and because of his successes in the Middle East and Africa, he thinks he knows the Middle East and he thinks he knows Islam better than he actually does. Kitchener, he has his own plans for Arabia after the what he believes is the eventual defeat of the Ottoman Empire. He essentially believes that the Ottoman Empire will be defeated in this war and many of their territories will pass into British hands. So Kitchener's ideas, his plans for the Ottoman Empire after their defeat, he wants to create an Arab caliph that would essentially be a British puppet. And so he begins to reach out to Sharif Hussein ibn Ali, who is essentially or basically the Ottoman governor of Mecca. He's called his proper title is the Sharif of Mecca, which basically makes him the governor of Mecca. British India, however, does not like Kitchener's idea. They do not want an Arabia united under one caliph. They prefer a divided Arabia as that helps them to play these different Arab rulers against each other. So British India began to actively oppose Kitchener's plan to create this Arab caliph and unite Arabia or the Arabs under an Arab caliph. Meanwhile, Hossein ibn Ali, the Sharif of Mecca, he makes no commitment to anyone in reality, he is loyal to the Ottoman Caliph, but he really doesn't like the young Turk government. He's one of those Arabs who feel alienated by the Turkish nationalism sweeping the government. And so while he doesn't reject Kitchener's proposal to become the Arab Caliph, he also does not accept it either. However, his son, Abdullah ibn Hussein, is actively helping the British against the Ottomans. Hussein ibn Ali also has to deal with a rising tide of Arab nationalism and many Arab nationalists who resent being under Turkish rule. Finally, in late 1914, the Ottoman minister of war in Verpasha, leader of the Young Turks, he decides that it's time to invade Russian territory in the, Caucasus, in the Caucasus region. And so he leads an attack on the Russian base of Sarakamish, and this turned out to be an absolute failure. Against the advice of his military leaders, against the advice of his German allies, the Ottomans led the Ottomans went into this war in the Caucasus in the Caucasus Mountains, and they lost over 80% of their army that went into that war. Almost they went into the war with about a hundred thousand people. Almost eighty thousand of them were killed, and most of them died simply due to the elements of this high altitude winter attack. Now to be outdone, another young Turk leader named Jamal Pasha, who was the Ottoman minister of the Navy, he decided to lead an attack against the British at the Suez Canal, which was also a failure. And so with these two early defeats, the Ottoman military, which wasn't all that strong to begin with, was made even weaker. And that is where we stand at the beginning of this episode. And so let's briefly switch our focus 
back to Europe, where the war in Europe, the European front, is taking its toll on all of the European powers involved. The European countries that are involved in this war are deadlocked on what's known as the Western Front. For one thing, most of Europe is now industrialized, and this industrialization led to the creation of very, very powerful weapons, which most of the military leaders weren't really familiar with how to use in modern strategies. So many of them were using outdated strategies with these powerful new modern weapons, which led to immense death, large numbers of casualties that Europe was just not used to. Finally, both sides began to utilize trench warfare in which they dug these deep trenches stretching for thousands of miles. Both sides had dug tens of thousands of miles of trenches across Europe. The soldiers would fight in there, fight back and forth, blast each other with artillery, and they would do really crazy things to try to gain just a few feet or a few yards of territory. Hundreds of men would die in these crazy suicidal frontal charges, hoping to overrun the enemy's trenches. Most of the time they were unsuccessful. Even when they were successful, it led to the um, to the death of hundreds of men. And even when they were successful, they were able to capture some another en- enemy's trenches. It wasn't too long before they lost it once again to another onslaught by the opposing team or by the opposing side. So this war was looking very, very grim. The British politicians who were involved in this war were looking for a way out of this stalemate. Some of them wanted to do a flanking attack on Germany. However, such a flanking attack would require help from the Balkan states, particularly Greece. And Britain's military leaders, they were reluctant to bring Greece into the war. For one, the Greek prime minister, he wanted to join the war. However, the king of Greece, he had a relationship with Germany and he did not want want to join the war. But the main reason the British didn't really want to bring Greece into the war was that if Greece entered the war, they'd almost certainly attack and quite possibly could capture Istanbul, the capital of the Ottoman Empire. If the Greeks captured Istanbul, this would almost certainly lead to problems with Russia because Russia and the Ottomans were old foes going back for for generations. And the Russians likely it is likely that they thought that they should have the first right at capturing Istanbul based on their historic rivalry with the Ottomans. And so the British and the French, they did not want to do anything to anger Russia. Russia was not doing that well in the war at the time. However, Germany was fighting on two fronts. On the on the western front, they were fighting against British, the British and the French, and on the eastern front, they were fighting against the Russians. If the Russians who weren't doing that well anyway in Europe, if the Russians left the war, then Germany would be able to remove their troops on the Eastern Front and concentrate them on the Western Front, and that would not be good news for France and Britain. As for the military leaders, 
the British military leaders, that is, Lord Kitchener was absolutely clueless. He had no idea how to get out of this stalemate. Even though he had been heralded as a great warrior in the Middle East and in Africa, he did not know what to do in Europe. The fact of the matter is, he was probably a little bit overblown. His reputation was probably a little bit more than what it should have been. While he was in the East, in Africa, in the Middle East, in India, creating a name for himself, he had really done just that. He had created a brand around himself, around his image. But now that he was in London, now that the people of, of uh, London can actually see him, they now saw that he really was not all that special and that much of the hype around him had been unwarranted. Now, I don't want to make it seem as if Kitchener was blind to the situation. He knew that the two sides, the allied powers and the central powers, he knew that they were locked in this stalemate. He just had no idea how to get out of it. He had no way to overcome it. He had heard about the flanking attack through the Balkans, but he vetoed that. And he also vetoed bringing the bringing the Greeks in. But he did not want to divert troops from the war in the West to go on to go into the Balkans and try to move through the Balkans and attack the Germans on the south. However, Enver Pasha's attack on the Russian base at Sarakamish that sort of forced Kitchener's hands. When the Russians first learned that Enver Pasha was planning an attack, they were actually very worried. The Russians, once again, they weren't really doing that great in the West against the Germans, and they didn't really have that many forces in the South to take on the Ottomans. And so when the Russians realized that Enver Pasha was planning to attack them in the Caucasus, they called on the British to help them out. The British and the French, they wanted to help Russia because Russia said that if you didn't help us, then they, we would almost certainly be defeated by Enver Pasha's forces. At that time, the Russians thought they were seriously in trouble because they heard that Enver Pasha was mobilizing this humongous force. And the Russians, once again, they didn't really have that many forces of their own in the region. But at the time that Russia put out this call to the British and the French, they did not know how quickly this first Ottoman attack would be defeated. Kitchener, Lord Kitchener, the, the British Secretary of War, and most other British politicians, they knew that they could not afford to lose Russia. They were very concerned about what might happen if the Ottomans attacked Russia and gained ground in the Caucasus. So finally, with Enver Pasha's attack on the Caucasus about to go into motion, Kitchener agreed to an attack, to a flanking attack on the Ottomans as well. His idea was to attack the Ottomans at the Dardanelles, and we'll discuss where the Dardanelles are in just a moment. However, Kitchener had one caveat. He wanted to make sure he insisted that this attack on the Ottoman Empire had to be done completely by the Navy. He was still refusing to transfer British soldiers away from the European front. Winston Churchill, who at this time was the British, basically, Secretary of the Navy, 
His official title was First Lord of the Admiralty, but basically the Secretary of the Navy. He wanted, he agreed with Kitchener's plan. He wanted to do this attack. He wanted to do some sort of flanking attack on the Germans, but he really felt that troops were needed. He also wanted to try to find a way to break the stalemate in Europe, and he was willing to go along with an attack on the Dardanelles, but he felt a naval attack on the Dardanelles required ground troops to support it. However, eventually Churchill came around to Kitchener's requirements when he spoke with the British Admiral in the region, and the British Admiral confirmed to Winston Churchill that he believed that it was possible to blast through Ottoman defenses in the Dardanelles without ground troops. And so with that, Churchill was willing to go along with Kitchener's plan and attack the Dardanelles without ground forces. And so by January January 15th, 1915, Churchill was busy making, making preparations for a naval attack on the Dardanelles. Now bear in mind, Enver Pasha finally ordered the retreat from the Battle of Sarakamish on January 17th. So by the time Churchill began putting this plan, his plan, his attack on the Dardanelles into motion, the Ottomans had been pretty much defeated in the Caucasus. So now let's quickly discuss the Dardanelles Strait. The Dardanelles Strait is a narrow strip of water that separates the European side of Turkey from the Asian side of Turkey. The European side, the land side of Turkey, this is part of it is made up of a region known as the Gallipoli Peninsula, whereas the Asian land side is made of the Biga Peninsula, which is really in northwestern Turkey. And we have maps on uh, within the show notes on the website at islamichistorypodcast.com slash bonus eight, which kind of points all these things out so you can get a visual idea of how this region looks. Now, the Dardanelles Strait is very strategic in this whole affair because it links several bodies of water. And you'll see this when you see the maps. It connects the Aegean Sea to the Sea of Marmara. And the Sea of Marmara is connected to the Black Sea by the Bosporus Strait. And the Black Sea is Russia's only connection to a warm water port. I'll try to illustrate this to you another way. In order to give from the Black Sea to the Mediterranean Sea and back, ships had to do the following. They had to first go from the Black Sea through the Bosporus Strait, which led to the Sea of Marmara, and Istanbul, by the way, sat on the Bosporus Strait. Had to go from the Black Sea through the Bosporus Strait to the Sea of Marmara. Then from the Sea of Marmara, they had to go through the Dardanelles, and this led to the Aegean Sea and then on to the Mediterranean. And so hopefully this illustrates how strategically important the Dardanelles were. Now, militarily, it would make sense to use a to use a combined land and naval attack on the Dardanelles. Any ship going through the Dardanelles would be under constant attack. When you see the maps, you'll see just how narrow the Dardanelles can be at some locations. 
Also, the Ottomans had forts all up and down the Dardanelles Strait. So any ship going through there would be in easy range of, Ard of Ottoman artillery. Some points on the Dardanelles were barely a mile apart. They're barely a mile wide. Some, po some points of the Dardanelles Strait is barely a mile wide. And the Ottoman artillery really wouldn't have any problem pounding ships as they pass through. And so using a combined attack, the thinking was that if you land ground forces on the Dardanelles, they could engage the forts and clear them out, which would allow the warships to go through the Dardanelles with much more ease. However, once again, Kitchener, he did not want to send any ground forces into the Middle East period, any part of the Ottoman Empire. He didn't really expect any, any um, he didn't really expect much from the Ottomans. We mentioned that they didn't really do good against the Russians, for one thing, in a battle that, battle that they probably should have won had they waited till the spring. Secondly, Kitchener and none of the Europeans were really all that impressed with the Ottoman military capabilities. Kitchener felt that the British Navy was strong enough to cut off all of the Ottoman seaports and basically keep the Ottomans from being a problem until they figured out how to deal with the Germans. Kitchener wanted to keep all of his forces in Europe, where all of the real and major fighting was, and then deal with the Ottomans afterwards. However, Winston Churchill, he was among those British leaders who supported a flanking attack. Churchill, as we mentioned, was the first Lord of the Admiralty, and this put him in charge of Britain's navy. However, Kitchener, as the Secretary of War, he was in charge of the overall direction of the British war effort. And at first, most naval officers, they went along with Kitchener's and essentially it was Churchill's plan too, to attack the Dardanelles without ground troops. However, as we mentioned before, Churchill had a very abrasive attitude. He had a very insulting demeanor that led many people to turn against him. So by February 1915, there were many people within the Navy who just refused and refused to take on this mission without any ground forces. Most of, much of this was not necessarily strategically driven. This opposition to um, Kitchener and Churchill's plan to attack the Dardanelles using boats alone, using ships alone, much of this was not based on military tactics, but was pretty much based on their dislike of Winston Churchill. And so Winston Churchill thinking at first he felt he had the Navy behind him. Then all of a sudden the Navy is refusing to go along with his plan. So now Churchill has to go back to Lord Kitchener and insist that he find a way to include some troops in this attack on the Dardanelles. And so Lord Kitchener, who more than anything wanted to keep British troops out of the Middle East, finds himself agreeing to send Britain's last remaining division that wasn't directly on the front. This was a division that was that was kept within Britain to protect Britain in a case of an invasion. He finally agreed to send these guys to support the Dardanelles attack. And so now against Lord Kitchener's initial plans, Britain finds itself 
about to engage in a land battle on Ottoman territory. Now, the Ottomans, they expected the Allies to attack the Dardanelles eventually. They knew that it was an obvious strategy, and they had their own intelligence agents within British territory, particularly in Cairo, which, as we mentioned, was technically Ottoman territory, but which had been occupied by the British for several years. And so the Ottomans had done their best to prepare for this expected attack, but there really wasn't much that they could do about it. The Ottomans were very low on ammunition. They just didn't have the industrial capability to to manufacture their own bullets. Everything they had, they had to get from Germany and other Europeans. Also, Enver Pasha had wasted countless lives on his ridiculous Caucasus campaign. And as we mentioned in the last episode, the Ottoman recruitment effort to fill up those missing, those um those lost soldiers in the Caucasus didn't really go all that well. Now, the Germans, the German allies of the Ottomans, they knew just how vulnerable the Ottomans were in the Dardanelles, and they had tried their best to remedy the situation. The Germans worked together with the Ottomans to strengthen Ottoman defenses along the Dardanelles Strait on both sides, both the European and the Asian side of the Dardanelles Strait. They had mined the waters of the Dardanelles Strait, but despite all of these improvements, there just really wasn't much that the Germans could do because they did not have ammunition. The Ottomans did not have the ammunition for a real modern siege, a real modern attack. And so they had to basically do the best they could do. But both the Ottomans and the Germans expected to lose the Dardanelles when the Allies eventually attacked there. The main concern for the Ottomans was to defend the capital, Istanbul. Because once the Dardanelles fell, then Allied ships will have a straight shot at Istanbul. Also, Russian ships in the Black Sea, they would now be able to flank Istanbul and attack from the other side. And that was the main concern for the Ottomans, protect Istanbul. Well, the Dardanelles campaign began on February 15th, 1915. British ships, uh, really British and French ships, they open fire on Ottoman forts on February 15th. This initial barrage came from six British ships and four French ships, and they were firing from long range. They had not really gotten close. They were far enough away that the Ottomans really couldn't respond. The problem is that the Ottomans didn't have enough ammunition to waste on long range shots. The thing about back then, unlike now where we have more computers and satellites to guide ammunition ammunition barrages. Back then, and even before then, in order to use artillery, they used mathematics to get as close as they could uh, to their um, to their desired target. But essentially, to line up your target, artillerymen had to start off with a barrage that was that would give them an idea of where their their shots would land. So they would shoot a shoot a shot from their artillery. See where it landed. Okay, well, let's adjust it, and and they would adjust accordingly, slowly working their way towards where their target would be. 
However, because of their lack of ammunition, the Ottomans couldn't do that. They really just had to sit there and let the British and French just bombard them from long range. And so with Ottoman, um, Ottoman force under artillery fire, British Marines were able to land on the Ottoman shores of the Gallipoli Peninsula, which is on the European side of the of the Dardanelles Strait. And surprisingly, when British Marines landed, they found a bunch of empty Ottoman forts. Ottoman and German troops, they had abandoned the forts near the opening, near the mouth of the Dardanelles Strait, and relocated to forts along the narrows of the Dardanelles Strait. It was called the narrows because it was that narrowest part of the strait. The part that we mentioned was only about a mile wide. And this is where most of the Ottoman and German artillery was located. And so to understand the Ottoman and German strategy, since they did not have the artillery to go toe to toe with the Germans, they abandoned the front, the forts near the opening of the Dardanelles that led to the Aegean Sea and pulled back into the narrowest part of the Dardanelles Strait, waited for the British and the French to go there. And so with the Marines finding these initial force abandoned and with the British and French artillery bombardment going unanswered, these initial days, it seemed as if Allied victory was going to be inevitable at the Dardanelles. And so when word began to spread that the Allies were firing on the Ottomans and that they were finding a bunch of empty forts, and it seemed as if the Allies were going to have an easy victory here, several leaders of the various Balkan states in the region, Balkan states in the region, they began to declare their intention to join the war on the side of the Allies. The first two to join in were Bulgaria and Romania. Then came Italy. They also chimed in saying that we want to join the Allied forces as well. And then finally, even the Greeks, both their king and their prime minister, who were initially divided over whether to join the war, they now finally united in their decision to join the Allies against the Ottomans and the Germans. All of these different uh, nations, the Bulgarians, the Romanians, the Italians, and the Greeks, all of them wanted a chance to grab Ottoman territory, because right now it seemed as if the, the British and the French were going to have an easy win. And back in London, Churchill was pretty was pretty pleased about, about the way things were going as well. As the commander of the Navy, as the, the, the overall leader of the British Navy, he was seen as the architect of this invasion on the Dardanelles. And so many people began to give him all of the credit for this, for what would they thought would be the inevitable success of this attack on the Dardanelles. And for Churchill, this seemed as if an opening to an end of the war. If the British were able to capture the Dardanelles, they were able to capture this region, and they were able to then move on and quickly capture Istanbul, and they're able to then push through the Balkans and attack the Austria-Hungary kingdom, they knew that the people in the Austria-Hungary kingdom, they were not really loyal 
to the Austria-Hungary kingdom. Austria-Hungary was like the Ottoman Empire, made up of made up of a ba- bunch of different ethnic groups. They knew that the people in this region wouldn't really put up much resistance to Allied forces going through, which meant they would have an easy shot to their real enemy, the most difficult and dangerous enemy on for the British, which was the Germans. They would now finally be able to flank the Germans and hopefully put an end to this war. And so this looked like the opening that the British were looking for. So Churchill and most other British leaders at the time, they were all naturally happy and elated at the possibility for a quick end to this war, which was claiming a lot more lives than they had expected. We're going to see how that turns out in the next episode. In the next episode, we will hopefully discuss how the different powers react to the initial stages of the Dardanelles attack. So with an allied victory looking inevitable, all of the European powers are starting to make claims on future Ottoman spoils, and chief among these were the Russians. So we'll see how all of these different European powers claiming parts of the Ottoman Empire that hadn't even fallen yet We'll see how what kind of impact this had on the British intentions for the Middle East, which is what our story really is about. But until next time, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash Middle East to find other episodes in this series. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star rating and review and share it with your friends and family. You can also support the Islamic History Podcast and get access to exclusive content by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash islamichistory. We have exclusive episodes covering the life of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, the life of Ibn Zubair, the Crusades, and so much more. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all our Patreon subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.